Uh, Lord, I, I thank you for this opportunity to um, just teach with, with Frank. I thank you for the opportunity to look at these questions that we have. And uh, God, hopefully get some answers. Lord, I pray that, that Spirit, you would reveal to us the truth of your word and, and show us again and again that you are good, uh, that your word is reliable, and, and that uh, we can lean on it. And so I just pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to dive first question right here. So this is a question from Matthew 7, 21 through 23, and I'm going to read that in a little bit. But the question is, how can you do miracles and cast out demons in Jesus' name, but not know him? What then does it truly mean to know Jesus? Is, is it important as a believer to distinguish between those who really know him versus those who just use his power? So in order for us to actually know what this question is about, we need to go to Matthew 7, 21 verses 24. I wanted to, to read that this morning just to, to get an idea. Where is this question coming from? Um, and, and here's what it says. Um, this is Jesus talking. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these are, when I, when I said confusing words that Jesus said, here's some confusing words that Jesus said. So I think this is one of the scariest warnings in Scripture that we have. I think this is one of the greatest warnings that Jesus ever gave about um, the fruit of our lives. And I really think it's about the fruit of our lives. And... So there's a few parts to this question. Um, I'm going to let Frank tackle um, kind of those first two questions. Um, actually, you want to dive into that, that part, Frank? Uh, well, my notes, excuse me, uh, the, the context I thought was really interesting here. By the way, you guys, it's really important, <clears throat> you know, that we, uh, that we become good Bereans. We become good biblical scholars that we, that we study, that we test, that we talk about and pray about. Um, principles of God's nature and character that we see in Scripture. So, so the, when I read this, the first thing that stuck out to me was the context. So the context here is at some point <clears throat> in eternity, here is someone presenting their credentials for admission to God's presence, presumably, you know, after they, they die. But the interesting thing to me was that the claim the claim of relationship based upon some miraculous work actually wasn't accepted. You know, Lord, Lord, didn't we do such and such? Didn't we do so and so? Shouldn't I be, shouldn't I be welcome now into your presence? And the, so the claim of supernatural power was supposedly evidence of right standing or friendship with God. Uh, but it breaks down right there. Because the truth is, no one will ever satisfy or earn admission to God's family by works, you know, supernatural or natural or otherwise, correct, right? Um, in fact, uh, we're Protestants. We actually are pretty convinced <laughs> that our salvation comes as a free gift of grace, right, 
And what activates that gift is actually our choice to, to turn toward God, believe what he says is true, right? That, it's that simple. And I'll be honest with you, that the simplicity of that truth and that gift of grace has, I have struggled with it my entire adult life. You know, I just celebrated my 65th birthday, and I still find myself striving <laughs> to earn my father's attention, approval, and love, right? When he says, like, no, no, Frank, if you could have done it on your own, I wouldn't have needed to come, right? The law, you know, <laughs> the law would have satisfied my righteous judgments, right? You could never do it. Here's the beauty of it. I knew you couldn't do it. I never needed you to do it. I became everything you needed, right? Just accept it. Relax. So, um, and then, <clears throat> so again, the, the only response that we have is a humble response to the gift of grace that will save us from the wrath of God and eternal separation, right? Because that's really the picture of heaven, right? The picture of heaven is finally experiencing our original state of being in intimate friendship with the God who made us and called us and loved us, right? In fact, even our whole concept of hell, right? Hell wasn't created for people. Who was hell created for? Fallen, fallen angels, right? Hypersabanic personalities that, that existed in the garden with us, right? So, by the way, this thought also occurred to me, like, what takes more power? The fact that your sins are forgiven or pick up your, pick up your, your wheelchair and walk. Right? Do you remember those, those stories? Like, and, um, you know, receive your sight. Which actually takes more supernatural power? The forgiveness of your sin, the atonement of your sin, right? Um, so, this is what we know. Signs and wonders are given today, right? God's power is still being expressed. The Holy Spirit hasn't left the planet he actually came, right? He actually wants to inhabit, right, our, our everyday lives, right? And at some point, uh, I trust we will all experience sort of what I call sort of being naturally supernatural, right? In fact, if we don't, because, you know, that was, that was always my thing, like, no, Paul's, you know, when you read about Paul's life and all the miraculous things that Paul and the apostles did, that wasn't given to us as an example of, a, of an exceptional life. It was supposed to be an example of a normative life experience, right? So, um, uh, all those wonders are given as confirming evidence, number one, that God's truth and love are being proclaimed, right? And I'm not even sure that non-believers, I, I don't think that the rest of the scripture allows us to say, yeah, non-believers get to get to act like believers. In fact, you remember the, the story of the seven sons of Sceva? They wanted, they wanted to cast out demons like, just like the apostles did. But what did the demons say? We, 
we don't know you. We know who God is. We know who know you, right? Uh, or uh, who was the magician? Was it in Ephesus who said, can I buy, can I buy the power to impart the Holy Spirit? Sorcerer. Yeah, Simon the sorcerer, right? Yeah. yeah. That's, that's really good. I just wanted to add, um, so if you, if you look at this, where, where this um, passage takes place, it takes place in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's really important to read the passage before this one to get a sense of, of what Jesus is talking about here. Because before um, we, Jesus gets to here, he's talking about false prophets. He's talking about um, false prophets. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then he says this, which is really important. You will recognize them by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. And so clearly what this means, what this passage means, is that there are Christians today, there are Christian leaders today, um, that, are, uh, that outwardly appear to have like talent and power, the power of God, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. They're not actually doing it in relationship with God, they're doing it for themselves. And I don't think it's a stretch today to go out and, and just look in, in, in our Christian culture and find examples of this, right? Um, in the last year, there's been three very prominent leaders who fell because, um, because of they use their power and position to have inappropriate relationships with, with women. And, um, and, and one of them even claimed to deserve it because of the weight and importance of his ministry. And you see, so he's not working in partnership with God, he's actually, that's, that's this ravenous wolf, um, and I think it's really important, um, this is the question of discernment that was asked, how do we discern um, who, kind of, who is in the kingdom and outside the kingdom, and Jesus, or, or uh, Paul made it really clear in Galatians, he talked about fruit, and it's really apparent from this passage that fruit uh, isn't about how many people you lead to Christ, um, it's not about numbers, it's not about um, any of that sort of thing, fruit is internal, like, fruit for a Christian is internal. And if you go to um, Galatians 5, you can look at not only the fruits of the Spirit, but before that, there's the works of the flesh. And, and Paul contrasts the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. And this is how we discern um, who is, like, working, like, in the kingdom, being influenced by God, and who is not. And so I just want to read this passage real quick. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Same phrase from Matthew, will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you continue to say you're a Christian and sow these things in your life and reap these things in your life, you need to repent of these things. Like you need to, to, get, to get right with God. And it's easy for us to stop at some of the big ones, right? Impurity, sensuality, stop there. But there's some, there's some other ones on here too. Jealousy, uh, fits of anger, rivalry. I'm getting a little hot up here, you know? Um, so these are, these are some things that we need to watch out for. And then, of course, um, Paul comes back and he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So 
if you need to discern, like, who's following Christ and who isn't, here's two lists, right? It, here's two lists. Here's two criteria. And before we look at anybody else, let's look at ourselves, right? Let's judge, like, am I following Christ? Am I, am I sowing in the Spirit? Am I, am I um, working in the Spirit, or am I working in the flesh? So that's, uh, that's what I wanted to do there. All right. Chest timer. Ding. No. Uh, so let's go to question two. All right, question two. In week four, day three of the rooted study, in reference to Hebrews eleven thirty-two through 40, it states, none of them received what was promised. So how do we reconcile that with a God who keeps his promises? So first of all, it's, it's cool that this came from rooted because we've been doing rooted as a church. We've been meeting in, in rooted groups. And this is another, um, another question about a confusing passage in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 11. And so we're going to read, so Hebrews 11, just to break it down, it goes through the, what's called the Hall of Faith in the Old Testament, all these different people that trusted God and, and, and followed him in faith, and, and it says that their faith was accredited to them as righteousness. Basically that by trusting God more than themselves, that that was how they were saved. But then it says this in Hebrews 11:39. It says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Okay, so it's very important that we read this passage right, because if we read it wrong, what we're saying is that God is holding salvation out like a carrot on a string in front of these guys in the Old Testament, and then he pulls it when they die, right? That's not a good God, right? That, that's a misleading God, that's an the, uh, evil God, like, who's, who's playing with us and messing with us, so it's important that we understand what this passage is saying, and um, in the Rooted book, they talk about, they, they use this line, um, they say, the fullness of the promise of God's kingdom has yet to come, only when Jesus returns, we will experience God's perfection in this world, until then, we have faith in the sovereignty of our loving Father, who provides for us exactly what we will need in his time. So, here's the thing. Faith looks forward, right? Faith looks forward. And, and what they're saying in this passage is not that they would never receive uh, salvation, they would never receive entrance into God's kingdom, but they didn't receive it in their time. But we know that death is not the end, right? Death is not the end. They didn't receive what they were promised in their time. And how we know that is the last line of this verse that says that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Apart from us, apart from the church, that we'll actually all be standing someday, as it talks about in Revelation, at the, the wedding supper of the Lamb, you know, where, where the kingdom will be fully consummated, where, where we will experience oneness with God in Jesus, where the dwelling place of God will be with man. But that day is not today. That, that day is not today. We look forward to that day. I look forward to that day, but we're still living in a pretty messed up world, right? And so we have yet to receive that back. Maybe not. But, um, but, but that is the, uh, the short version. Yeah, I pretty much followed that same line. Um, I sort of asked the question, uh, you know, well, let me restate that. What was the original promise? The promise was that at some point in time, 
we were going to um, have a Messiah. We were going to have a Savior, right? That, that uh, the fallen state of mankind from, from Adam and Eve was God had a redemptive purpose that was going to be executed. Well, now we know it's like over thousands of years. But, it, but, but God made that promise in a way that even people, Adam and Eve knew. Hebrew scholars tend to agree that Eve, Eve thought that her very next baby was going to be the Messiah, right? She lost, she lost one son, right, uh, to murder. Well, if, you know, and, and she literally thought that God was going to, to fulfill his promise of providing a Messiah with her next child. Of course, we know that that isn't what it was. But so, so what you see in the Old Testament process is their hope and expectation, just exactly what you said, was based on <clears throat> that one day the Savior would come. We just happen to be born into the New Testament season where this, that Savior has come, and we actually got to understand and experience the incarnate God, right? Jesus said, I came to, as a full expression of the nature and character of God, and our faith today is expressed just like theirs with, because we have yet to see what? Jesus come back. We have yet to see the ultimate fulfillment of God's redemptive plan and purpose. And, and the scriptures says that one day we will be raised together with them and all of us together will what? Stand in God's presence and see him for who he really is, right? To stand in God's presence and see him for who he really is. I mean, that, that, that moves me. Thanks, Frank. All right, let's go to question three. This is a good question. Um, how do we know when to evangelize? And how do we approach it in a way that doesn't seem like proselytizing? Are there only certain people with this spiritual gift? So this is a good question. I don't know about you, but it's definitely something I've wrestled with in my faith. Um, but I just want to tell a short story. Uh, one time when I was in college, there was a comedian that came to town, and he told me this joke, or told, not me, but everybody, uh, told a joke that was really uncomfortable for me. And what it was is, is he talked about having Christian friends and that he loved his Christian friends and they'd invite him over and hang out and they never bothered him about Jesus. And he said he thought that was great for a while. And then he said one day he was driving and he realized like, wait, 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 wait. Okay, so if I have Christian friends that think I'm going to hell when I die, why aren't they willing to talk to me about that? Yeah. And he's like, are they really that good of friends? And, and that was a joke, right? Like, if, 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 if you knew someone who thought you were going to hell when you died, wouldn't you want them to at least talk to you about it? This was, you know, so that made me really uncomfortable and a real realization, like, oh, man, like, that is the urgency that we have to live with, right? We have to live with a certain urgency when it comes to sharing our faith. Um, that's why we can't have lukewarm lives. Right? We, have to, we have to live hot lives for, for God, right? We have to be hot um, because, uh, as Steve Mason said, time is flying and people are dying. 
So there's this sense of urgency, like I have to share the good news. Now the word proselytizing is not one that's found in scripture, but basically what it implies is one religious culture coming and imposing their religious culture on another culture. And I would just encourage you to know that's not what scripture talks about. It talks about evangelism. Evangelist, evangelist shows up three times in scripture and the literal meaning of the word evangelist, that's all it is. It's someone who brings good news to someone else. Um, the good news that Jesus loves them, um, that they're invited to live in the kingdom of God and not in the kingdom of, world, uh, of the world. And so we need to live with the kind of urgency that says, no, actually, when I share my faith, um, I'm pulling someone out of the kingdom of darkness and putting them into the kingdom of light. I'm inviting them in. And I'm going to talk about this with the next question, but the gospel is not monocultural. We're not imposing a, a, a new culture. We're imposing a, uh, imposing, we're inviting someone to have a relationship. We're inviting someone to have a relationship with Christ in their culture. The gospel is cross-cultural. So I think often um, over the last 20 years, I've seen there's been a lot of talk over the method, the way in which um, we're supposed to share our faith. And I think it's good to consider people. I think it's good to love people and, and build relationship with people. But I would just say this, the most loving thing that you can do for someone is to share the truth with them and to, to have courage to do that and have courage to speak up. And don't do it in a domineering way or an authoritarian way, but out of concern. Out of concern and out of genuine love. So that's what I'd, I'd say to that. Anything else? Yeah, no, I, my only tag onto that would be absolutely, the, you know, the short answer to the question. Clearly, clearly evangelism is one of the five-fold yeah. gifts of the Holy Spirit to the church, right? Clearly. Uh, but we don't all have that same gift or passion. However, we all have the calling and commission to do two things. What? Witness and testify, right? And literally, you have a testimony. There, there is a narrative about the transforming experience that you've, that you've had in your life, right? No one can ever take that away from you. Devil can't take it away from you. Nobody can take it away from you. That's really, really powerful. And, and really, the way, I read the, the way I read the scriptures, the expectation for us from the, uh, from the New Testament on is like, no, you just go about your day-to-day -day business, right? You just, you, just, you just go to the grocery store. <laughs> you just talk to the paper boy. You just, right? You go about your normal, mundane, everyday life and live a naturally supernatural life experience by virtue of the fact that that you are choosing to live in sort of a continual um, uh, dialogue uh, with your creator right it says the church the church isn't a place right church isn't a place church isn't what we practice at an address on a particular day of the week at a particular hour the church is people filled with the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. serving meeting people's needs yeah. in the name of Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really good. And I would just say this, when you get into those tough moments, um, when you're trying to discern, should I share, should I not share, 
I just want to encourage you. I think God honors boldness. I, I think that if you do share in those moments, I think that God will meet you in that boldness. Because I know I've gotten into situations where I, I have wanted to turn on the brakes, you know, but it's like, no, I have to in this moment. So, um, question four, sort of a related question. Um, what's the appropriate way to convert cultures to Christianity? Is erasing their unique culture, dress, etc., biblically based? And so this is what I was getting back to with the idea of proselytizing. I mean, the short answer is no. Uh, we don't remove someone's cultural identity when we give them their spiritual identity. All right, we, we, that we don't do that. But this question refers back to a legacy um, that we have in Christian nations um, where, we were, where, where in the last 150, 200 years, um, you know, European Christians would, would take over a land and justify it by con converting native people. You know, and that in the U.S. West, that was called Manifest Destiny, right? Where we're going to justify taking over someone's land by converting them. And they didn't just, like, convert them to Christianity. They, it meant westernizing people, too. So it meant removing them from their um, tribal communities, um, removing, you know, like, or putting them in, in western gear, um, you know, western education, all of that. And that's a legacy that we have to come to grips with. It's not a good legacy. Um, but the, the gospel, like I said earlier, the gospel is more cross-cultural than any other faith. Any other faith, it's more cross-cultural. Like if you if take um, Judaism and, and Islam, for example, if you were to become a Muslim, for instance, it, changing your name, changing your dress, um, learning Arabic because it's the language of the Quran. Um, I asked a rabbi one time what it would take to become a Jew, just out of curiosity, and it was about dietary restrictions and certain laws that I had to follow. So more of a cultural orientation. We aren't inviting people into um, a, new, uh, a new cultural identity. We're inviting them into a new relational identity as a son or a daughter of God. Because Jesus doesn't demand us to, 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 to change our culture. What we see in Acts is that um, you have these really different cultures coming together and figuring it out and really asking the question okay how can how can i as a gentile best honor my jewish brothers and sisters and how can i as a jew best honor my uh, gentile brothers and sisters and so the the model we have in acts is actually hey let's meet about it let's dialogue let's talk how can we best how can we best figure this out um, and that was around issues like circumcision. That was around issues like dress. How can we honor each other depending on the culture uh, that we're in? And um, I just want to read this passage uh, from uh, Galatians 3. It says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So what is Paul saying here? He's like, is he saying that you no longer have a Greek identity or a Jewish identity or a male identity or a female identity? No, he's not saying that. He's saying that your primary identity is Jesus. And that in Christ, you are all called to be one. That you are called to be one in Christ. And you have been baptized into Christ. You're now a son or daughter of God. And that is your primary identity. 
And so um, we as a church, that's our challenge. We need to live like we're one. Uh, we, we need to do the hard work of dialogue to figure out the best ways to honor each other. Um, I know churches that um, live in really diverse areas that have tried to figure out how can we be um, multicultural in, in our expression of church. And it's a hard road. You know why? Because we all have preferences. We all have things that we prefer. We all have ways that we prefer doing things. And so they've had to figure out how to... Um, how to live together, how to work together. And so simple solution, uh, not, not simple solution, but just the, 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 uh, the verse that I, the key verse that I want us to keep uh, in front of us on this is 1 John 1, 6, and it says this. It says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So, what if Jesus is enough to bridge all our gaps between each other? Uh, what if Jesus um, is enough to bring people together? Because what do we have in Jesus? We have forgiveness. We have grace. We have service. Like, we have all the things we need to actually function together as a community. More, we have more tools than any other group. It, we have more tools than any other group to do that. So I know we're running out of time, but I want Frank to answer this question five for us. Okay. Unless you had any other thoughts. On oh, that no. Before. My only thought on question four was what comes first, change of behavior or change of heart? Change of heart, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't it nice that you got to come here today dressed any way you wanted? You didn't have to put on a three-piece wool suit? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so <laughs> question five uh, uh, was I'm scared to teach my children about scripture when they don't fully understand its complexities. How do you approach biblical teaching uh, in the home so that kids' faith becomes genuinely their own? Uh, so, big umbrella here. The meta, the meta concept here is that we got to learn how to understand life through a Hebrew, a Hebrew worldview rather than a Greco-Roman uh, philosophy of life, and by that I mean, um, so you know, most of us, if we if we were if we were trained in a state school, we were we were taught to be, you know, neo Hellenist. We were taught to be Greek. We were taught a Greek Roman worldview. Essentially, the Greeks and Romans said the same thing philosophically or spiritually that we live in a dualistic universe. So the whole idea of secular and sacred. Anybody ever heard those terms? Is that a biblical concept? Is that a Hebrew concept? No, Hebrews would not have recognized that because they would have said this. All of creation is under whose sovereign will? God's. There is no secular and sacred. It's all sacred, right? There's, there's simply lives and practices that reflect God's kingdom and character or those that don't. There's no, there's no sacred music or secular music. There's just music. <laughs> some of it, some of it communicates <laughs> um, uh, uh, a Christ-like message or value. Some doesn't, right? So, so number one, got to think like Hebrews. I would say that that one change, the Hebrew model of education in the home, has been the single greatest change in my 45 years of vocational service, right? Number two, first and, and, and foremost, 
Um, contrary to an evolutionary worldview, our hope for the future does not lie with children. Our hope for the future lies with parents. Parents are the hope for the future. Why do I say this? Well, because number one, we don't see the human experience getting better and better over time, do we? No, in fact, the Old Testament would suggest that if God hadn't intervened in the course of human events, we would have murdered one another eons ago, right? <clears throat> so we don't, we don't, we just don't see children um, as being the hope. Uh, in fact, uh, scripture would say we're always just one generation away from a return to tyranny and slavery because every generation must step up to the frontier of faith and trust and obedience if they want to experience the life God intended for them. Uh, my classic is this. I love Deuteronomy, which literally translates the second telling. Here's the picture. All 12 tribes are standing in front of Moses, <clears throat> and 10 of them say what? We don't want to go over there, right? We want to stay on this side of the river. And the, the picture is, I take a little license, but li literally Moses puts his head in his hands, and he just said, like, seriously? Seriously? You just spent your life watching your grandparents and your parents do what? Wander and die. And you're standing here telling me that's what you're going to choose? He said, now, did God love them? Did God provide for them? Yep. Did their shoes wear out? Did they get meat? Did they get bread? Yes. Did they get water? Yes. But did they experience the life they were born to live? No. And so Moses says this really pregnant thing. He says, don't you know? Don't you understand what you're choosing today? Don't you know that if you refuse to accept the invitation to put your hand in God's and go on the most amazing, terrifying adventure you could ever imagine, he will what? Drive you out. And he will wait for a generation that will believe him, that will trust him. Right? Right? So we're always one generation short of, of um, slavery, right? So, number two, it's really important as parents that we remember this. Keep the end of your parenting in mind. What, what is really the end test of your parenting? I would suggest that the test is, is, um, is some set of, of attributes of mature, healthy, equipped, courageous, adult Christian living, right? <clears throat> Are you training your children through each developmental stage to take their rightful place in the church on or about their 18th birthday, <laughs> right? <laughs> so the Hebrews literally taught this. The Hebrews said, <clears throat> All parents have a God-given responsibility and opportunity to train their children in the law 
and a trade. Right? What is the law? It's right and wrong. It's right and wrong and the courage and conviction to do what? Choose to do right. What's a trade? It's really your ethic. Right? It's how do you can you do an honest day's work for an honest day's pay? Right? They said, if as a parent you will train your children in the law and a trade, you literally set them up for successful adult Christian living. And they said this, listen to this term. They said, if you do not train your children in the law and a trade, you condemn them to a life of liars and thieves. Why? Because if you don't learn to love if all of your relationships are based on your selfish desires and motivations, what are you basically? A manipulator. You're a liar. You're just, you just use people to get what you want or you need, right? And if you don't know how to do an honest, honest day's work for an honest day's pay, you just steal. You steal from the company. You steal on the time clock. You steal out of the tool shed. You steal. You're a liar and a thief, right? So there, there's, there it is in a nutshell. Um, so, see, how does this perspective apply to our parenting? Just really quickly, I try to follow, I try to follow a principle of, well, actually, the, the, the Latin root is called cephalocaudal proxal distal. If you look at how people develop in utero, how do they develop? What, what does the doctor try to find first? The heartbeat. What does, the, what does the family notice first when they get that black and white picture? How big that head is, <laughs> right? So literally, developed from the inside out and the top down. So train your children that way, right? All the first lessons of kingdom can be taught to young children at home. For example, origins are first cause. We live in a created universe, right? By extension, God is divine and sovereign, and we better learn submission to authority. Right? Oh, here's another one. My life is not my own. And the entire created universe gives evidence of God's creative genius every day. Number two, what's the meaning of life? Well, image bearing, right? You are fearfully and wonderfully made for intimate friendship with Jesus in his family, and you have intrinsic high value as an image bearer, right? What does that do by extension? Well, it teaches us self-respect based on who God says we are, and it better teaches us respect for others and their property <laughs> by extension, right? Number three, unique design and destiny. You were created for a purpose. Lo and behold, your design probably matches your destiny, right? You were equipped. You were empowered to do something wonderful and unique, right? <clears throat> um, here's another one, Christian self-government, uh, which includes everything from personal stewardship to responsibility character, and character development. Uh, I mean, we taught our kids um, finance um, and tithing, right? That's how we used an allowance, right? But even their allowance, they learned how to pay forward. They learned how to pay their tithe from their allowance. And they had to serve. First of all, they had to serve one another. If my children chose 
to break trust <laughs> or to be cruel or mean to their siblings. They had no social life outside of our family. <laughs> no, if you cannot, if you cannot demonstrate <clears throat> progressive character and love for one another, then no, you don't get to hide out in the community. You don't get to have friends, right? Oh, so this is the other thing we used to say to our kids when they went out the door. Do well today. Do well today. Why? Because if you're in the fourth grade, fourth grade is your job. Remember we went back to the law in a trade? Show me, show me your paycheck for the fourth grade. If you're not satisfied with it, then let's do something different. Let's do something better. And I always, always say this, remember who you are, remember who you came from, right? And then make sure that you debrief the day with your kids every day, right? Celebrate everything good that happened and have compassion for all the not good stuff that they had to deal with, right? Because they're people. They need to learn that grace, right? Um, choose your friends and associates wisely. When my son was in high school, you know, there, there came a day where I said, like, that kid right there, she's not welcome here. Right? Why? Because, because he says, don't be fooled. Bad friends do what? Corrupt good morals, right? Um, this is not the only life you will live. That's pretty radical, right? Um, <clears throat> I also said this. Um, my wife is not your maid. <laughs> this house isn't yours. Your room is not yours. It's mine. I was here before you were. I will be here when you are gone. Right? <laughs> and it infuriated my kids, you know, like, what? <laughs> what are you saying, Dad? I'm saying, <clears throat> if you can't keep your room clean, <clears throat> you got too much stuff. I have a big black bag here, and we're going to just kind of, like, help you by simplifying your life a little bit. And, <laughs> and when you show that you can be, because what's the principle? If you can be faithful in a little, you can be faithful in a lot. much, right? Don't park your bike behind my car. It's only a matter of time before I do what? back over it. <laughs> if you didn't pay attention to me the first 500 times I told you, <laughs> now you're going to get the natural consequence. <laughs> well, my bicycle's broken. Yes, I know your bicycle's broken. Right? <clears throat> um, uh, yeah. We were born into the age of the church. So you better find Christian community. When my kids went off to college, I was like, right? Um, and offer your children um, the invitation to respond to the Holy Spirit, right? Show them, model for them what it means to live a, dis a spiritually discerning life, right? Because as a parent, uh, I tried to love my kids the way God loved me, right? My love is unconditional, but my blessing is very conditional. When my daughters were proposed to, what, were they, what was the first thing they were supposed to do? Have you talked to my dad? Because, because parents, you have grace for your children. No one else has. So, like, be, be bold with it. Be courageous with it. You know, talk to Jesus about it, right? He will, like, give you insight. Nobody else has. And what they can reasonably do for themselves, right? Because you want to train them to be self-sufficient and strong, not codependent, weak, right? Um, by the way, you do have a spiritual enemy. But guess what? He's toothless. Yeah. 
He roars, but he has no teeth. You have authority, right, to defeat the enemy. Uh, by the way, childhood ends about 12 years of age, right? We do understand, right, adolescence, adolescence as protracted childhood is a Western postmodern cultural phenomenon. Never existed before 1920 or 30, right? Um, when I saw that in your notes, I kind of gulped. I was like, yeah. oh, man. No, stop treating your children. Like, so even when I, when I, when I train student, student youth leaders, right? I say, Six, sixth graders, are they children or are they young adults? They're young adults. Let them grow up, right? Don't keep them in a fourth grade flannel graph gospel, right? <laughs> let, them, let them grow to spiritual maturity, right? Um, <clears throat> by the way, I just read an article last month. Uh, did anybody see on Greek Row at the University of Washington? They had a big party and COVID spread, blah, 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 blah. And the statement from the administrator was something like, well, I guess we can't really expect these college kids to obey health protocols because, after all, they're still only children. <laughs> I trained my children for war. <laughs> right? No, seriously, my, I have three daughters, we have three daughters and a son. My, the, the whole, I love that Old Testament picture where it says, and they, they numbered the people. And they numbered those who were what? Equipped and trained for war. And it didn't matter whether they're, whether, what gender you are, because, because where's the battle? Everywhere. Where is the battle for the hearts and minds of a generation? Right? I, we, equipped our children for war because we wanted them to know that dying isn't the worst thing that can happen to you. Dying stupid, dying for nothing is a waste. But there are things worth living for and there are things worth dying for, right? <clears throat> By the way, last one, healthy fear is a strong deterrent to misbehavior. <laughs> like, what did your mother tell you to do? <laughs> Hold her hand and not run out in front of the street? What did you do? <laughs> now, you guys, I know in the state of Washington, it's actually against the law to spank your kids. And I'm not advocating cruelty <laughs> or violence to children. But at some point, I knew I had a responsibility to cross my son's will. <laughs> and it looked something like, bend over my knee. <laughs> right? And by the way, I only had to spank him once or twice, right? Because the first time, the first time he acknowledged what he was supposed to do and what he didn't do, did he fight me? Did he tantrum? No. He bent over my knee, and guess what? Did I have to spank him then? No. Was my goal to spank my children? No. My goal was to train my children to submit to authority, enjoy the blessing of their parents, right? <clears throat> One final encouragement. No matter if you are a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister or an aunt or an uncle or like Cindy and I being a nana and a, nana and a papa, right? Every time you choose to follow the example of Jesus and say or do loving things, right things, right? You actually set in motion a ripple effect of righteousness, right? 
which is very different than what the sons, the sins of the father will be handed down to the sons and daughters, to the you know, third and fourth generation. Truthfully, you guys, righteousness has that same potential. Every time you choose truth and love, you set in motion a legacy that will touch generations you may never meet, right? Cindy and I, our first goal as husband and wife was to break generational sin. We wanted to break generational sin. And then we wanted to establish an inheritance for our children and our grand, because really it's our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our great-great-grandchildren, and our fifth generation. Man, if that doesn't motivate you, Awesome. So there you go. So we're going to have Frank come back and do a 10-week series on parenting. I, I will be there every week. Um, let's pray, guys. Lord, we just thank you for uh, being the God of all truth. Lord, that we can look to you, um, God, for any circumstance. And so much of life is humbling, God. Being a parent is humbling. Um, God, wrestling with questions about evangelism, knowing what to say, knowing what not to say is humbling. Putting yourself out there is humbling. Um, so God, just help us be your humble people, God, willing to learn, willing to be taught. And we thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.